Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. A first-of-its-kind study from Cleveland Clinic showed that the presenting clinical phenotype of Alzheimer's disease or Lewy body dementia, along with neuropathology and a patient's age and sex, predicted the likelihood of subsequently developing specific behavioral and psychological symptoms. This study provides an important window into how the heterogeneity of clinical changes in dementia at initial visit can help inform patients and their caregivers of the probable course of behavioral symptoms later in the disease course and help guide management. In today's episode, we're discussing these findings and what they mean for the future of dementia practice and research. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. And joining me for today's conversation is Dr. Jagan Pillai. Dr. Pillai is a behavioral neurologist in Cleveland Clinic's Lou Rovo Center for Brain Health. Jagan, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you, Glenn. So before we dive into the research, I want to start with your intent. As a clinician and researcher, tell me why this research was so important for you to pursue. Glenn, I'm sure you face the same situations I have. Um, you have uh, patients and family members walking into your office, and uh, one of the main questions is, tell me, doctor, you know, what do I have and what do I expect to have over a period of time? I diagnose people with cognitive problems, uh, including uh, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease and Lewy body dementia. And one of the uh, questions I get asked is, so what do I uh, look forward to next once, uh, once you have a diagnosis? Uh, so we discuss about the, the nature of the disease, the kinds of changes that I can expect. But so far, um, there was a disconnect between what I actually told them and what they are going to experience later on. Because uh, a subset of these patients uh, have behavioral changes as the disease progresses. And I'm sure you'll come across the same situation. Managing behavioral changes is the toughest job I have. It's exhausting for the patients. It's exhausting for the family members. And it's very challenging for the physician to figure out how best to help these people. Because behavioral changes, you know, really talk about something very fundamental about who you are as a person and what it means in your social life and uh, how you make meaning of that. And when people have these symptoms, so far we had no way of uh, even uh, understanding, you know, which of these people are high risk for developing behavioral symptoms, uh, which of them have low risk, and what can we tell them and what can we prepare them and how can, as a physician, guide them through this process. So that was the main motivation behind this book. So I'm fascinated by this project, just the scope of it, you know, the number of patients. So for our audience, why don't you tell us how you got the patient data, how many patients were in the trial, and what types of things you looked at? I'm also curious how long it took you to do this study. Uh, Sure. The Cleveland Clinic is um, part of a network of Alzheimer's disease research centers across the country uh, called uh, Alzheimer's ADRCs, the Alzheimer's Disease Research Centers. 
So one of the key goals of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center is to have a longitudinal cohort of uh, participants uh, over a period of time. They get characterized, and eventually after they uh, pass on, their brains are evaluated autopsy to, to correlate the clinical picture with the underlying pathology. So the ADRCs have been in existence you know, since um, the late uh, 80s. And so they have a large cohort of, uh, of patients that they have been characterized. You know, Cleveland has had contributions to ADRC in many iterations. So that was a cohort that was evaluated in the study. Uh, see, these were uh, patients uh, followed over uh, on average about uh, four to five years before their evaluation at autopsy. And did all the patients have uh, autopsy? No, a subset of the patients do have autopsy, and then the study focuses on over um, 2,000 patients who actually have had autopsy confirmation. Mm-hmm. And it's very important to know what the autopsy uh, diagnosis as a condition is, because until recently, um, maybe uh, five to 10 years ago, uh, biomarkers for uh, making a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease was not readily available in the clinic. So we still don't have these large numbers of clinically characterized patients um, that with, uh, with whom we can say with confidence they have an underlying digital disease like Alzheimer's. I'll just throw out a, a quick commercial to everybody out there that if you're a member of a consortium uh, or a group as, as you're a member of, uh, it's a great opportunity uh, to get large volume of data from uh, a diverse subset of, of institutions uh, not just obviously in the Alzheimer's, but, you know, in the tumor field that I'm in or whatever the field is that people are in. So if you have access to these, I encourage people to uh, uh, look at clinical trial opportunities uh, in their area of interest. So take me through a little bit more the research. Uh, you know, I come to see you. What are my risk factors for figuring out my phenotype and and what's going to happen to me down the road? Is it my gender? Is it my age? Is it my specific type of dementia? What's the what's my risk? Uh, Glenn, you would you definitely appreciate this as a neurologist. The number one thing is localization. <laughs> uh, we always think about you know how do you localize a symptom, and that's pretty much what's primarily done in this paper. Uh, it basically, uh, you know, makes the connection that, you know, if you localize a problem to a certain part of the brain, then you might have problems, both cognitive and behavioral uh, issues later that part of the brain. So um, Alzheimer's disease, um, just take an um, you know, exemplary case, is generally thought about as, you know, someone having memory problems uh, initially and over a period of time, they develop other kinds of symptomatology. So when you have memory problems initially, that means that your hippocampus or in the medial temporal lobe is involved initially and then in disease affects other areas. But what we have found out over a period of uh, time is that you know this memory onset is only a subset of cases. It is definitely a majority of cases, but we still have significant amount of uh, Alzheimer's disease cases uh, where the initial symptom may be um, primarily, say, language-related, where they have you know aspects of aphasic syndrome, or they may have problems uh, with judgment where they're not able to take care of themselves or plan what their daily life looks like, or they may have primarily visual-spatial symptoms where they have difficulty navigating or reading and um, aspects of that. So uh, the key idea that uh, drew, drew this research is that you know, if you have amnestic or memory complaints, it's coming from the medial temporal lobe. If it's coming, if you're having primarily uh, executive or judgment problems, it's likely to involve the frontal lobe. 
Uh, if it's a language problem, it's going to involve the left temporal lobe, a visual spatial problem on parietal lobe. So if you're having, you know, relatively focal pathology that starts out, it's also you know, possible that the behavioral symptoms also is going to match the same circuits that are being affected in each of those areas. It's very intuitive, but actually it was never looked into. So this was the kind of a formally um, testing the hypothesis uh, that happened in the rest of the paper. Mm-hmm. And I guess uh, one of the things I saw was that, and again, it's probably intuitive that the younger you are when you have your problems, the greater your problems down the road. Yeah, actually, there is a flip side of the coin because you know, the severity of the problem not only relates to the fact that you're being followed longer, it kind of kind of makes sense because, you know, the more you follow a person, the more likely they're going to have a developing problem. But what I mean by younger age in this paper is that people having a younger onset of the disease also have a much more severe uh, phenotype. So that in, in the Alzheimer's disease field or degenerative disease field, we kind of separate out the young onset cases and older onset. A young onset is not usually considered under the age of 65. It's kind of lying in the sand that is you know, defined by Medicare criteria. But actually, phenotypically, they tend to have much more aggressive disease, much more atypical forms of the disease. And what we show here is that they also have uh, a higher likelihood of severe behavioral changes. Uh, it is kind of different from the typical picture you think about because, you know, you think about older patients having behavioral problems as they're, you know, in the nursing homes or things like that. But if you look at Alzheimer's disease or Lewy body disease, that's another condition that was studied here, the younger people actually have much more severe problems in the behavioral domain. Well, I'm 65 next year, so if I can just get to that point, I, I guess I'll be doing better, right? You definitely have to celebrate that point. <laughs> what about uh, male versus female? Um, yeah, that's an interesting thing. So, you know, to be honest, we have we evaluated the differences between male and female, um, you know, aspects of education, um, you know, or the genetic risk factors like APOE risk factors, um, because these are common ways in which the, how the Alzheimer's disease or Lewy body disease, um, you know, develops differs. For example, Alzheimer's disease is well known. It affects women uh, a little bit more than men. Uh, whereas for Lewy body disease, it's so skewed towards men. So men have a higher risk for developing Parkinson's and Lewy body disease. In this case, what we found out that um, in general, men t- tend to have much more severe behavioral changes than women, but women have a higher risk for some kinds of behavioral issues, you know, things like depression. But it's also an interesting difference, which makes me wonder, you know, differences in how the neuronal circuits are different or uh, in men and women that's causing these differences in the face of similar pathology. And uh, I don't think you looked at this at all, but does handedness matter? You know, people that are left versus right handed? Yeah, we did not look into that specifically, but that's a great uh, question. As I'm, I'm, now that you asked me, I'm curious to see what, what actually it did show. Because, you know, one of the reasons that we saw that language, people with language issues, language deficits in, in these kinds of diseases, have in fact the lowest incidence of any behavioral issue. And we think that's primarily because, you know, the part of the brain um, that that's important for reality testing and, and a sense of self is more in the right frontal cortex and it tends to be preserved, uh, relatively preserved when you have such asymmetric involvement like primary language affecting the left hemisphere. So I, I, would, be, I would be curious to see how the right-handed versus left-handed uh, differences play out here as well. 
So, Jagan, uh, anything with uh, educational levels affecting outcomes with patients with uh, cognitive problems? Uh, yes, uh, we we actually you know try to see if, if does education play a role in the nature of behavioral symptoms that your you, uh, a patient would uh, would experience um, because education higher level education actually has been shown to slow down disease progression um, because of a phenomenon called cognitive reserve where you compensate for the pathology in some way and interestingly we see a similar effect in behavioral changes as well so the the cognitive reserve that you build up through education, and I'm, I'm supposing through other activities like, you know, uh, engaging in social activities or cognitive exercises, I mean, there's a potential that they, that they can be actually um, uh, mitigating strategies for behavioral changes as well. So that's an exciting um, uh, insight from the study. So, you know, some of it seems like the good news, bad news. I mean, it solidifies, I think, things that you probably thought for some period of time. But, you know, you have somebody that comes in that's 55 you know, and they're having significant cognitive-related problems, I guess you have a more concrete ability to tell them what their course is going to be. On the other hand, it's also pretty tough to have to tell them that, right? Well, you know, I think it is tough. It, you know, one of the things that I, as a physician, uh, really take, uh, uh, you know, I found this very, uh, what, what can I say, you know, meaningful is the fact that as part of physicians, it's not only prescribing a medication, it's also making something very challenging that's happening to a person meaningful and for them and helping them set goals that are, that make, you know, life, uh, you know, something that they can build on still in spite of this challenging situation. So I find this work kind of filling that role. For example, younger onset of patients have a higher likelihood of having language problems. And with them, I could kind of, kind of reassure them that, you know, they're as far as their, you know, in terms of their behavioral changes and how they relate to people, that's not going to be affected as much. Uh, whereas in people with significant executive deficits or judgment problems initially, I think, you know, I would be in a better position to also let family members know what to expect so they can find help uh, much earlier than uh, waiting for things to happen before they find find themselves overwhelmed. Yeah, and I, I, I like that attitude. I'm a kind of rip the Band-Aid off guy as well. Uh, and I think it's better to have these conversations early. But, you know, you have to find a way to do it and still give hope, uh, which is obviously the difficulty w- with patients. Have you changed what you're doing since the data came out, or this is how you approach patients anyways? It's, it doesn't change since you published the data? No, I, actually, I, you know, one of the biggest surprising things about this uh, data is that it's, you know, it clearly separates out each domain of initial symptoms and the specific behavioral changes. I honestly was not expecting to see such very clear, distinct profiles. Um, so I was not. Um, actually, uh, you know, um, uh, talking to people about, you know, different risks based on their clinical phenotype. But uh, now that we have this concrete result as part of my conversations. Yeah, sounds sounds like it's important then that we need to make sure we get this information out. So what do you see going forward? What's the next step for your research or what are you looking at? So what we have followed up, uh, you know, we have initiated study. One of the questions is, yes, we know that different phenotypes or cognitive phenotypes are also related to, related to specific behavioral changes. Uh, but if we are now trying to tackle a different issue, uh, a related issue in the sense that, you know, when claim that there, there are not a lot of medications that are very effective for these conditions. 
I mean, so we kind of uh, use medications that are that psychiatrists use and kind of repurpose them in many of those um, uh, behavioral management situations here. Uh, one of the key challenges there is that it's it's very hard to know, you know, which is the appropriate medication in each situation because different kinds of cognitive circuits are involved. And we don't know what is the kind of, you know, cognitive um, behavioral circuit that's affected and say, specifically for a hallucinations for the versus a delusion. And if, if that can help us figure out if a medication is likely to be effective uh, and kind of target patients much more effectively for, for a medication. So we have now studies uh, ongoing trying to understand the, the, or define the specific circuits that are involved in hallucinations versus delusions um, and in different kinds of degenerative diseases like Lewy body dementia or Alzheimer's disease so that we can ha have better targeted therapies for these things or have biomarkers to track these things. So that's the next step we are following up on this work. Jay, and this is very exciting research. Uh, we're really looking forward to uh, continued uh, input regarding medications and the work that you and your group are doing. Uh, so thanks for sharing that with us today. We appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, Glenn. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening. <laughs>